Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. This week, students at the University of Missouri, angry about the school's indifference to numerous instances of flamboyant racial hate, forced the resignation of the anthropomorphic shrug emoticon that had managed to somehow become the university's president. But now comes the what next part. Joining us to talk about it is Slate's chief political correspondent, Jamel Bowie. Meanwhile, in Milwaukee, the GOP candidates met for their fourth debate and Well, this time it didn't end in tears or angry remonstrations like it did at the last debate. But was there anyone who clearly excelled? We'll pick out the frozen moments and challenge our own assumptions. Finally, it was a big week for the Fight for 15 movement, with their fast food strike earning them a mention at the GOP debate. It was not a good week for those who want to close the Guantanamo Bay prison facility, with Congress once again throwing barriers in front of one of President Obama's oldest campaign promises. We'll figure out what happens next. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, Marina Fang, Jessica Scholberg, and Lauren Weber. But here's what happened first. Hello, everybody. Gosh, it's great to be here. I'm Jason Lincolns, editor of Eat the Press. We have a So That Happened for you that's going to be very special. And we're going to kick it off right now with another debate. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, we had an... I like the debate. We're with Zach Carter. Hello. And we're with Arthur Delaney. Hi. And yes, so the GOP meets in Milwaukee, the most romantic city ever. Milwaukee Great. is for lovers. It is. It I is. like Milwaukee. Wisconsin, I don't know why people don't like it. Who, no one is saying they don't like Milwaukee. You're kind of dumping on Milwaukee. I'm not right dumping now. on Milwaukee. It's a great town. Anyone who dumps on Milwaukee or Wisconsin can come fight me now, today, okay? All That's right. just fact. That's just a fact. Milwaukee's got great beer, great ice fishing. Two activities that combine perfectly. Mil- perfectly. Milwaukee's best. Exactly. <laughs> so they met in Milwaukee for a debate, uh, absent two of their friends, Chris Christie. And uh, Mike Huckabee. I can barely remember these guys now. Mercifully. They, they, mercifully, they fell down. It was the, much better. It was much better with a shorter, a shorter, with fewer people, they got more time to actually yep. debate. And, better product. Uh, yeah. Yep. All right. So uh, who won? It was Donald Trump, right? Donald Trump must have won. I don't, I Donald Trump's making America great again, right? No. So Donald the, Trump won. Debate no? was civil and substantive. Oh, and really? Did not have a satisfying really? winner at all. Well, Donald Trump does not win a series. All right. Well, I say Rand Paul won, and I don't know if it matters that he that won. Is, it doesn't, but go on. That is so outrageous. Rhetor- Just because your expectations are in the basement. I thought he and was... he got up to the to the first floor. Well, it also might be because I kind of agree with him on foreign policy, whereas I think the other people are all crazy on everything. So I'm more sympathetic to him inherently. But no, I thought I thought he had a strong debate. I thought he went toe to toe with Marco Rubio and beat him uh, twice. And, and Donald Trump. And Donald Trump. Uh, I mean, audience... I thought he looked really tough and good. The audience did not agree with you that Rand Paul beat Marco Rubio. In fact, in the in the uh, purest sense of the word. 
Marco Rubio handed him his ass as far as the, as far as the audience goes. His responses to Rand Paul's uh, sort of semi-isolationist camp, which was rooted in can't bankrupt the country just to just to keep funding an army that's already better than the twenty next biggest militaries in the world. Which I totally understand why Rand Paul says that. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It makes sense. But it's not about making sense. It's about winning the slavering devotion of the GOP base, and they all backed. Rubio in that exchange. Now, they were an interesting audience the whole night, booing Donald Trump early on, and I think more than once. Yeah, they got him later when he was saying uh, kind of gross, piggish things about Carly Fiorina. He, he was like, she keeps interrupting everybody, which she did, but everybody on stage was interrupting everybody. on. Donald Trump and, really and, thought that line was going to win him affection, and, too. But, and this yeah. is, I, I didn't quite understand this. They seemed to be booing him early on and rallying to the defense of John Kasich when when Trump was like, I don't have to listen to this guy. Oh, and yeah. The audience was, was going, ooh, really? You're going to boo Trump? Yeah. In oh. favor of Kasich over a over a mean takedown too. It was he was saying I you know I built a beautiful one you know multi billion dollar company. I don't have to listen to this man, and uh, it was it was just a typical Trump nasty gram, and uh, and 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 the audience was like, shut up, we're not we're not having it. I was like, what what the hell? I would I would definitely <laughs> put it you know it's a suggestion that Trump's star is fading. Here's I gotta tell you, I think that. Keenan Thompson and Cecily Strong and Taryn Killam and A.D. Bryant. Well, I'll agree with me when I say the Trump's act wears thin. Oh. And uh, it's starting to thin out. It's starting to thin out. And I think Trump understands it. He felt spent from the moment he walked on stage. Uh, the, the jabs, they lack the vigor that he's put behind them in the past. He actually made a couple of Attempts, feeble attempts, really, to be more statesmanlike. I feel like he got the advice tonight. You're gonna go out there and be a statesman, Donald Trump, and it didn't. It didn't come across. I think he did it, that in the last debate too, and it, yep. he didn't have a he didn't have a very good debate the last time either. He yep. said that himself in an interview after the debate. Said, "Yeah, I'm trying to be more diplomatic. That's like, not your brand, bro. You're losing, bro. Yeah. So uh, also also losing uh, tonight, uh, Jeb Bush. I continue to think that there is no path back for Jeb to take the take 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 the reins on this anymore. Now he finally. I think he's, I think he's off his he's off any sense of game. Uh, I he don't had know. his best debate performance he's had he's had of the whole the whole season though I, by far. He did. He had a very strong moment in the beginning where he finally stood up to Donald Trump and said, look, deporting 11 million people is bad. This came after it, he thanked Donald Trump for allowing him to speak. What, well, you know, that you could see how that might be humiliating, but as, <laughs> yeah, actually... I'm a neutered man thanking it, Donald Trump for the opportunity to speak in a debate it, I was invited to. Uh, he was, he, he had way. verve when he said it. it didn't feel the way it would if you were just reading it and didn't <sighs> You were reading, you're so charitable to read verve into that moment, but go on. Let me finish my point. You should go on. Thank yeah. you for allowing Arthur to speak. Sorry, Jason. I apologize. Quit trumping us. I, apo- <laughs> I apologize. So Jeb made his point. The audience clapped, and that was great. But that was it, really. And the rest of the night was kind of quiet for him. And that's I thought he was going to come out swinging. He didn't look low energy, though. He, he, he usually shows up, and he looks like a microwaved potato. All right, and and tonight he looked like a human being who had who had beliefs. Uh, I I thought, look, if I were watching that debate, I would not think, ah, that's my guy. But I thought he had by far the strongest debate performance he's had to date. And I think 
for the, the, the way this race has got to game out, for somebody like Marco Rubio, Rubio's got to clean up all the establishment support and then start peeling away support from the, from the Carly Fiorinas, from the Ben Carsons, from the Donald Trumps. And so when Jeb Bush has a relatively good debate performance, that's bad for Marco Rubio. That's bad for the idea that the Republican Party is going to get this, 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 this whole nomination thing figured out in the near future. This, this sets us up, I think, for people winning different states early on and there being a long, drawn-out fight. Oh, you, for sure. Did you see a big flaw in what Marco Rubio did tonight? Well, I mean, aside from just saying policy things that were the, insane yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah, misleading yeah. people, yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, thought, I thought, look, I think he looks... I, People, I think, underestimate the degree to which he just looks stiff in, term, in terms of pure performance review. Um, you know, Trump looked sleepy. I, I always think Marco Rubio looks kind of stiff. Uh, and, and that's one reason why I thought he, he didn't look good against, against Rand Paul. Rand Paul sort of looked like he was up there like, you know, fuck it. I'm just going to be me. And if you guys don't like it, I don't care. My poll numbers are in the toilet, so I'm pretty relaxed. And, and Rubio looked kind of stiff like, well... You know, I'm the class president, and I've been trained that this is the appropriate response to this question. Um, <laughs> there's just a little bit of that in, in his in his persona, and he's been in politics long enough to be to I be can like. I see he, your point. He, he could have, he, you know, he would have he would have rounded off those edges, uh, you know, before. Uh, I can see your now, point. One, now the front runner going into this was Ben Carson, and I didn't I didn't <laughs> think he distinguished himself at any moment. He had very strange answer where he's on. Uh, foreign policy where he talked about basically invading Iraq, stealing its oil and land <laughs> as a solution to make ISIS look like losers. Yeah. That's that's his words. We've got to make ISIS look like losers. Like, what? what? And I think the whole room was like, that's so weird. Let's just pretend it didn't happen. And no one talked about it as if he had, like, farted. <laughs> The thing is, he had he had multiple just weird moments. There was a moment, okay, where Neil Cavuto asked Ben Carson, "Is Ben Carson? You proposed a flat tax." Uh, Donald Trump over here thinks that the rich people should pay more, uh, you know, higher tax rate than the poor people. Um, which which one would God think is more fair? And Ben Carson started off by saying, you know, I think God would be on my team. And, you know, I think, you know, it's the same rate and everybody plays the same amount. That sounds about same percentage. That sounds what's more fair than that. And then he's going to talk about deductions and mumble around here in the weeds for a little bit. And then he said, you know what, actually, how about how about we uh, I like the poor. Let's give them a rebate. So I like that. And that basically means, yeah, I think I think Donald Trump's plan that rich people should have to pay more than the poor people. That's the right plan. That's what he's saying. That's the one God likes. He basically said that Donald God likes Donald Trump's plan more than his own. You're saying when he what went, he went, into the, going on? he went into the weeds and didn't come out. Yes. <laughs> I think into the weeds. I think the most those weeds are dangerous. I think the most the, the most humanizing thing about Ben Carson is that he would definitely be the president who, like so many of us, always has his picture taken with his eyes closed. You guys, you uh, guys remember Al- Alan Simpson? Ben, keep your eyes open, Ben. <laughs> <sighs> Alan Simpson is this former Republican senator who used to say these just awful things all the time. And, uh, he still does. And he, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, he, yeah that's he, would, he would get into these high-profile rows with the Huffington Post where he would say something awful and we'd ask him about it. And then he'd say something even He's more He's going to say awful. something mean about you on his grave epitaph. Yeah. I remember, Rest assured. I, I, yeah, I used to say, Zach Carter was a thief. <laughs> <laughs> Alan Simpson, whenever to whatever year he died. Dies. Zach Carter was a pussy. <laughs> but I, no, he wouldn't say. He'd say something weird. Now, where are you? now you're getting in the weeds yeah, here. Yeah, because I, I confronted him once, and he said and it was about Grover Norquist, and just I was totally trolling him with this question. And he and he just he just said Grover Norquist. 
some guy is just wandering around in the swamps. And that was the weirdest thing I'd ever heard. But I got it tonight because that's what I was thinking. That's what Ben Carson was doing. He was just kind of wandering around in the swamps. You know, he's just sort of, oh, maybe there's some policies over here. No. Maybe there's some policies over there. I don't really know. And, I, and there were several, like, direct, simple questions that other candidates took. Like, would you, do you favor the minimum wage? And yeah. Ben Carson had to be asked repeatedly. He'd say things like, you know, I think we should be in a position where, you know, while I favor that, I don't think that maybe we need to take that step, uh, although I do support it. And it, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, on bank bailouts, it was, uh, but I, was I would just not get us into that. We wouldn't be there. <laughs> like, would you have a time travel machine? Where he does. Yeah. Arthur, what did you think about the extent to which we got some middle-class economics questions into this debate. It started off immediately with a strong question about the minimum wage, which, you know, people who are middle-class earn more than the minimum wage. Sure. But when yeah. you talk about the, the broad rubric... For some reason, we talk about middle class all the time. We never talk about working class. But that's what... Because, like, we, we literally don't have any solutions for the working we, we class. We talked apparently. about the minimum wage, and it was just a simple, clear policy question, and, and, and the candidates enunciated clear differences between themselves, and... There was the interesting talk about Marco Rubio's tax plan and giving families a rebate for having children, which is similar to something we already have. And I thought that was pretty good. It was better than what we had seen in the previous debates, maybe because the moderators were were toning it, or maybe because there were fewer people on stage. Or maybe because it's Fox business, and, and the Republicans can't complain about media bias when Fox is doing the debate. That just seems too ridiculous. I would have thought as much with Rick Santelli. We're going to see, you know, we're going to see, because there was a moment where Maria Bartiromo, at the end of the debate, and I got to say, the balls, the balls, the courage, this was, this was some baller shit right here. Can we just say guts instead of gendered shit? Oh, gosh, I apologize. I apologize. She it's just easy to do. Just the size to the audience. Swing. Anytime you, you want to say balls, just say guts instead. It's, all right. All right. Nice all right. Job. All right. All right. All right. Thanks. Tonight, tonight she closed the debate by asking uh, the candidates to compare themselves to Hillary Clinton. And she presented Hillary Clinton in very glowing terms. And, and got booed. And they got booed by the audience. Be. Got booed by the audience. That no, the is audience a was weird all night. If there's, there, there's going to be a moment where... Uh, Republicans come back with complaints. It's going to be on that one. I almost think that Maria Bartiromo did it that way at the end because she wanted to see if anyone would have the guts to come after her network. <laughs> after they did what I thought, I thought they acquitted themselves pretty well tonight compared to CNBC. Well, Ru- Marco Rubio immediately parlayed that into laughs for himself. He did. He's yeah. great at that. He's great at that. Uh, without... You say he's stiff. Marco Rubio, of all of them, is the one is the least humorless guy on that stage. Yeah, yep. he was deaf. He sure. did a good job. I, I didn't think that much of the question. I didn't think she was trying to bait them into bashing she said, she said that Hillary Clinton had a great resume and a better resume than, than most of the people on stage. Well, she merely, and she yeah. merely listed the titles Hillary Clinton has had, which are, you know, pretty impressive. But, you know, Donald Trump, you know, he has been, uh, I, th- I think he's really shy when he's attacked other Republicans, but he responded to that question by, by hitting, hitting Hillary Clinton, right? And he said, I think she's been the worst Secretary of State in the history of this country. And, and it, did, it just didn't seem to, like, land. Like, I didn't, feel, I didn't feel any passion or impact from that. It just didn't, it, it didn't register with me. Well, it's one of Donald Trump's esteemed wedding guests, right? 
So, right. you know, of course there's no passion there. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. And welcome back. Uh, Zach Carter remains with us. I still live in the studio. You still live in the studio? Getting Uh, outside my tent right now. And we're very excited. Joining us today from Slate, Jamel Bowie, writer, photographer, baker, legit renaissance man. Like, your your statue should be on the face of Neptune in the yep, Piazza yep, de Sideria. Yep, yep. <laughs> uh, that's, that's what they call me, the Renaissance. No, they don't. That's, <laughs> those are lies. <laughs> Once again, circumstances have conspired to put, uh, yes, three, um, three UVA graduates at the table together. This happens from time to time. We apologize to all our schools. Um, for being less good. Yeah, well, I didn't want to go there, Zach, but that's Zach Carter for you. It's 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 actually it's actually nice that we all have a sort of shared experience because we're going to talk today about um, what's been going on at the University of Missouri, right? Um, and uh, and I think that I think that we span a, we span a number of of maybe like a generation of time 
at, at the University of Virginia. I graduated in uh, 93. Um, when did you graduate? 2005. I graduated in 2009. We have a lot of experience in, 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 in issues that kind of like happen at the University of Missouri, happening at our school. Right. Um, I can think of just a few off the bat. Well, just last year, a uh, young man, uh, uh, Martise Johnson, yeah, gets gets basically jacked up by cops outside a bar for no good reason. Right. Uh, the the Daisy Lundy affair of of many many right. years ago. That affair, to remember, is she was I believe our first our first black student body president. Right. There was an allegation made that someone assaulted her uh, when she was mm-hmm. out getting her cell phone from her car. And, of course, you know, half the student body didn't believe her at the time. Um, and I think that I think there's still people at UVA who just don't believe her, believe she lied. Right. Uh, I remember not long after I graduated, there was a big row with the Board of Visitors, uh, one member saying that we were admitting – uh, too many black students that weren't making it in college at UVA. Wow, when was the? It was, uh, I want to say, 98, 99. Wow. It was a brief and easily put down row because people like me pointed out that UVA was, you know, also bragging about the having the highest rate of... Uh, a graduation rate for yeah. black students. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and UVA does, There's an. I, I think the African-American community at UVA does a fantastic job taking care of their own. Um, they, uh, when you go there as a student, you get a lot of resources, get a lot of peer mentoring, get a lot of help. So in Virginia, we've, we've lived through some of these experiences, uh, but it's never, UVA never really quite exploded in the way it happened right. in Missouri. So what, what is it about what they're doing at Missouri that went so wrong, went so sideways on everybody? I mean, part of, I partially think it's just a function of the media environment we're in. Social media didn't just didn't exist in the past. I, ha- I have to imagine that in you know in fall two thousand five at UVA when there was like four or five kind of like instances of people using racial slurs and that kind of thing. Um, had there been Twitter and Vine and Snapchat and the whole nine yards, that would have become a thing very quickly. Yeah. And and social media, I mean, more than just broadcasting, is is often a ways of organizing for younger activists. And so it's like this accelerant that just didn't exist. And I think. You know, I think se- separate and apart from the actual incidents at Missouri, um, in the in the conduct of the administration, which also plays an important important part, that accelerant um, kind of just changes the extent to which things get out and the extent to which um, they galvanize people. Is this a legitimate progress paradox? Should we be thankful we didn't have social media yeah. back when we were going to college? Because sometimes I feel like, yeah, I'm really thankful. Right. I don't know. I, I you know. And this is where the, the, the role of administration gets into it. At Missouri, the complaint was that the administration just did not take um, these uh, race, racist incidents and uh, charges of a, a racially hostile climate at the school very seriously. Um, and I was, I was talking on a, a different show yesterday uh, and saying that the, the thing about sort of someone you know, openly using a racial slur on a campus, is that that's probably just sort of the punctuation point on like a like much more common and frequent things that maybe yeah. involve racial slurs, but just might be like, you know, aspects of, of racial hostility. And if a school isn't taking that seriously, that does be, that, that's a burden on the students. And it's very easy for me to imagine how, you know, years of, an, of, a, of a school not taking this seriously boils over after you have some, um, uh, explicit incidents that are then, you know, sent through social media and, like, become rallying points. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I heard you on the show. I think it was the Diane Reem show. But, I mean, you know, when when 
when we were at UVA, when 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 the Daisy Lundy thing happened to me, I, I, I feel like I remember that like the campus atmosphere very very clearly. The issue was not that something bad had happened to Daisy Lundy. It was it was that everybody kind of knew that there were broader problems right. uh, at UVA. And I mean, we we I guess we didn't actually overlap, but I mean, like the campus was really segregated. I mean, it was it was it it was segregated when I was there too. Everybody kind of knew that. And, and nobody really wanted to talk about it. Even people who were uncomfortable with it and wanted it to change didn't really know what to do. And so everybody was sort of like, okay, yeah, this is uh, awkward and I, I don't have friends from different communities. This is weird. And then something like that happens and everyone has to, has to deal with it. Right. They, they have to look at it. And I felt like when, you know, you've seen this thing at, at, at Missouri, you've seen this thing at Yale, there are these, these, these events which on their own don't necessarily seem to be like that catastrophic, but, 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 uh, but, but represent broader, broader problems. I feel the, the student body. I feel one of the case, the, the case that at the University of Missouri had, let's say a big strike zone for, for, for this kind of contact, a big zone in which it was just comfortable to walk up to black students and call them racial slurs. I think they made that case pretty effectively. Yeah. Um, uh, and I guess, you know, if we want to keep it the strike zone metaphor, it's up to an umpire to police that. And their problem was that there was no uh, authority being handed down from the from the school's president. At right, all. right. Which, I, I, you know, on the on uh, Diane Rehm's show, one of the guests was um, asking what possibly could a school administration do. And it, it's important to be clear here, no one's really talking about punishing students for um, using racial slurs. You can't, I mean, you can't just, you can't, kick someone out of school for, for no, saying no. something nasty. Yeah. Um, but schools can, you know, work to um, kind of institute codes of conduct to say very explicitly, like, these are things that we don't tolerate on this campus. Um, uh, schools can have, I mean, UVA did um, sort of basically diversity training for incoming students. Yeah. Like, you, I very clearly remember both my first uh, week at UVA, and then I was an RA afterwards, so, like, every subsequent year at UVA, um, taking first-year students to sort of, like, hey, this is a big skit about how you're going to have me, you might have to live with black people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and not just it's, black it's people, gonna but, be like, okay, Latinos but... <laughs> and Asian Americans. Yeah. You, you have to live with people who look different than you. So here's how, here's what, like, not to do in that situation. Why is it so controversial for a community to say, look, we understand you have First Amendment rights. We understand that the government can't come in and police your speech. But, you know, as a community, we have certain guidelines, certain standards. You know, in our in every workplace, right. there's a set of guidelines and standards, things we can and cannot do, whether we want to or not, whether we think it would be cool if we could do these things or not. <laughs> we can't. And we abide by that because someone set it down and it made sense and it was purposeful and it was came well with, and you can leave if you like if you if you want to go do something really nasty right. to the people of color in this office Jason, right. you're actually free to do that you will just lose your job you right go to i will jail, be shown the door your job i'll yeah. be shown the door even if i don't lose my job i will be uh in some way isolated from the rest of the you'll group you'll be shunned by the community right and so there's again again you know this this forms a core of the the honor system we have at, U, at uva why is it so controversial for for missouri to just to say things like that I don't know. Um, and it, it it might be a function of just the fact that, well, you know, there are students of color in Missouri and there are, there are faculty of color in Missouri. There aren't really that many. Um, and, I mean, it's interesting. UVA, UVA is a place with a lot of uh, problems and complications and difficulties with regards to race and, and, and the black community in Charlottesville, which is, you know, 
frankly just been kind of fucked over quite a bit in its history in the town. Um, Despite being kind of a hippie paradise for like right. middle class, I mean, people. The, the thing people, the thing people do not know about Charlottesville, and I only kind of know because my fiance is from there, um, and I'm just there a lot these days, is that it has a large, like about fifteen twenty percent black population. That pretty much the 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 chunk of Charlottesville surrounding university used to be historically black and then basically over the course of like 30 years became not yeah. black and that's like a source of uh consternation and resentment uh in the in the town but for all of its troubles uva does seem to have real self-awareness about some of this stuff um and has slowly and grudgingly tried to account for it and i'm not i don't know enough about missouri to say that about the school but i, I have a sense talking from uh, Mizu alum that the school just does not has it does not has not really confronted its own racial past in the way that it probably ought to, um, and and to be fair to Mizu in a way that a lot of schools and especially schools uh, with roots in the South uh, haven't. Well, you know, there's a really interesting protest from uh, a that's been videotaped. I think it's got you know 120,000 or something YouTube views, but it's it's from Mizu students and they're they're, they're all black students and. They're confronting a car with Tim Wolf, the the, Is it the homecoming president. parade. Yeah, the homecoming yeah. parade, and it's it's a really clever protest. They start by they by stopping his car by just creating a human physical barrier, and then just telling stories starting dating from the beginning of from the university's founding in 1839 all the way to the present day. And the whole point of doing that, of creating that narrative, is to show like this this is not an event that happened like last week. That's a problem. We have a really long history we have to deal with, and this is this is something the university's got to deal with systemically as as part of its you know the way it operates right um and i mean that that what, what one of the things i find kind of frustrating about these types of events when they um when, when they sort of bubble to the like the to media attention is that those types of of events don't get a whole lot of coverage but when the protesters do something that's maybe a little mm, makes you uncomfortable yeah. then, then then that's what gets a lot of attention so there's a whole lot of attention right now uh, this week there was at least to uh, you know a, a reporter being sort of intimidated out of covering a protest, a student reporter. Um, you, Jamal, I just kind of want your thoughts on this. Like, what what do you think the significance is of that event, and why do you think we latch on to that uh, instead of instead of the other yeah. the other issues? I mean, there's I've read quite a bit attributing that event to some kind of you know broad ideology of uh, you know potentially politically repressive political correctness. I'm not sure that that's the case. Watching that video, I saw a bunch of overzealous students and especially overzealous uh, faculty member um, doing something kind of dumb. Uh, I was disturbed by it, but I think part of that is just like the the self-interest of journalists. I, th- I think part of the reason why this has been latched on to is that journalists do not enjoy seeing other journalists and, treated like shit. And honestly, the self-interest of journalists who were just then that day dropping right. into the story for the right. first time. Um, and so I don't, you know, I, I do not see it. It's both, It's t- for me, that's a, a particular incident that shouldn't have happened um, on the same token Student activists are not the most savvy people in the world. No, um, bless them, but they're not. <laughs> and so, faculty, and and sometimes faculty members at universities aren't the most savvy people in the world either. They right. are cloistered, right? Like like a, a beltway politician would be cloistered, right? Yeah. And so there's a lot. Nothing about the situation is good, but I don't see it as indicative. And I do think it's a shame that because of sort of 
you know, journalists being journalists, we're, we, we've latched on to this incident and not sort of the really, you know, I think I think potentially monumental power dynamics going on at, at Mizu. It is it is unprecedented for a college athletics team to to essentially force the resignation of a college president. I mean, that was that yeah. was incredible, um, yeah. and and that is that really upends sort of the relationship of student athletics to university. I want to talk about that, but let me just put a pin in the in the whole um, this this whole thing. Just I just want to point out to our listeners that this uh, what was portrayed as an existential threat to freedom of speech was actually settled in about ten hours. Yep. The student activists uh, tweeted, "Sorry, we've learned we're learning, we're growing. We apologize." The professor in question. Probably might lose her senior care, but she apologized too. So the system worked, is what I'm saying. <laughs> so moving on, is there something cynical to be said about the fact that it took students who had the power to interrupt the flow of cash being transferred from one group of elites to another to actually force a resignation of this person, of this president? I think it's only cynical insofar that sort of power relations in like a late capitalist democracy are cynical. Um, <laughs> so pretty cynical. So pretty cynical. <laughs> um, but you know, it's no. For me, it's no different than a group of workers using their leverage, like as workers, to achieve some kind of um, change on their behalf. The athletes, a- athletes are the most valuable labor force on these big state schools, um, and in this is a, in, in this case, the athletes. Uh, were acted in solidarity with their fellow students and um, used that leverage to to get a result they wanted. Now, I I have to admit, I kind of thought the the president has to resign is sort of like one of those demands that you can't meet. I was like, oh, maybe for something else that they might get something. But like, <laughs> president <laughs> resigning is that's a lot. I don't know if that's going to happen. So. Like repeal Dodd Frank. Oh no, just give us like five billion dollars in a subsidy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, but I mean that just underscores. Both how I think important th- that moment was and, and that result was, and really the amount of power that these athletes hold. And I think it, I think A, we'll see this again because once people know that it can be done, people are going to work towards it. Right. And B, it's, it will be interesting to see how this is leveraged. Is it going to be leveraged all around these um, issues of racism and, and sort of like cultural difference on campuses? Is it going to be leveraged around? labor issues on campus. Now, it'll, it'll be interesting to see, and it'll be interesting to see how this affects other universities. I have to imagine that other college presidents and other other sort of, you know, governing boards are watching this very closely. Yeah. I, I, I was told uh, at, a, at a thing yesterday from a professor at Duke who, who noted that this week the school is having a big campus-wide forum on racism um, that was suddenly announced. <laughs> um, an elite school in the south huh? oh, wow. so odd. It's, it's amazing what you can pull together when you have the cause to pull it together
Hey, we're back. We're still talking about this week's grand old party debate. And I'm joined now by Lauren Weber. Oh, hi. Who authors the morning email. It's a party. And we are also here with Marina Fang. Hello. Who is our senior something or other. Associate politics. Associate politics. You promote and be a lot, Jason. (laughs) Tonight, during the debate, we watched on Fox Business Network. There was a 25-minute Benghazi movie. (laughs) (laughs) Which also, like, cut out the sound, so it made you look at it. It It's actually decent advertising because I was forced to pay right. attention yeah. to it. Michael Very Bay, well placed. Michael Bay's American Griper in theater <laughs> soon. But there's another commercial, this crazy commercial uh, attacking the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which you got to watch in full glory. Lauren. I did. You know, it's it's a great commercial. It's a spot in which it basically just implies that uh, Elizabeth Warren and I don't know who the other person was on the other red banner are communists, uh, forcing us <laughs> to work day after day at desk pushing paperwork. It looked, oddly enough, kind of like that Ministry of Magic scene in Harry Potter. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm going to be honest, that's kind of what it looked like. The best part of that was that Elizabeth Warren took the time to call them out on Twitter and say, hey, did everybody see that commercial where I look like a communist? (laughs) I was like, Elizabeth Warren, could you be more of a badass right now? Let's talk a little bit about sexism tonight. Oh, man. All right. All right. We're going to get into it. Donald Trump, man, he really thought he was on to something tonight when he complained about Carly Fiorina interrupting people, which is a weird complaint because all you ever see at these debates is dudes trying to interrupt each yes. other. But Carly Fiorina, she tried to get into that space, throw a few, few bows. Donald Trump uh, cut back. And what happened to him? He was booed. He got booed. He like was major. It was fantastic. We all cheered. It was great. Lustily booed. It was fantastic. It was super, yes. super amazing. It was honestly surprising, and I was super happy to see it. I have to say, the reason the reason uh, this slipped my mind at first was because it happened in the undercard debate, and I make it a policy now to mm. let everything that happens <laughs> at the undercard debate slip my mind as quickly as possible. But the undercard sexist moment was Mike Huckabee. Oh, that was just horrible. Mike was Huckabee, a bad oh. joke. Too. Mike Huckabee uh, decided that it was okay to equate the chair of the Federal Reserve uh, to his wife, whose name is also Janet, uh, and said, I'm familiar with Janet yelling because my wife is often yelling. And I was uh, like... And her name is Janet. Oh, my God. It was just... It was Our entire newsroom just, like, cringed. You know... I, the I, internet I, collectively cringed. Yes. I'm the kind of person who says comedy needs to take chances and then people, they want to make sexist jokes. That's cool, but don't explain the sexist no. joke. Never explain that, the joke. Is that the issue we're taking with this? It's not. It's not. That he explained <laughs> it, no, the sexist but, joke? But, but that's, that's he did. He did explain it. He did, I mean, yeah. it was a poor delivery, poor explanation, but at the end of the day... I mean, that was just horrific. I mean, what that I mean, that in his response to the Syria question was also terrible, where he was basically like, let's shun all people that are in need of our help. <laughs> is there, Marina, is there anything in the undercard debate that you think we should walk away with? Um, I mean, the one thing that stood out, I think, for most people was that Christie proved that he should not have been there, which really? I think, yeah, I mean, I think he... He was above the the fray for the most part. I mean, he which isn't hard to do. That's true, but debate. like I think in a way it benefited him. Were you being in favor in of Christie dropping to the lower debate though? The last no, time? I I thought you, he should you, have been there. You but you thought Jeb should have been there. I don't know if I would say that. You just thought Jeb should be going permanently. <laughs> this is true. We keep going back to Jeb. It's just. I feel like every time his campaign sets these expectations, like, oh, he's going to do better this time. And every time he just fails miserably. 
It is pretty sad. He's in a losing expectations game because you can't be like, oh, I'm going to undercut expectations because he's doing so poorly that it's hard to do that and shore up support from your donor base. Because to win a debate, you often want to undercut your expectations so you perform better. But he just does so poorly every yeah. time that he can't ever win the expectations game. Here's a yeah. little. Here's the a bar little. is pretty low for him. Yeah. <laughs> Tonight, I think Carly Fiorina took the stage fully confident that no one's ever going to attack her HP record again. No one called her on it. No one on the panel called her on nope. it. No one on the stage called her on no. it. After three debates in which they tried and tried and tried to needle her. I think it was a massive victory for Carly Fiorina in that sense. A massive one. I think that was the biggest victory of the night for her because otherwise she really kind of failed to make an impression besides the Donald Trump zinger. Right. Yes. And that's the thing that we're still waiting to see from Carly Fiorina. What do we think about the way immigration was, was talked about tonight? Because in the past, we talked in the past on this podcast about the short shrift it's gotten. Tonight, there was a big row over immigration. Of course, Trump talked a lot about uh, uh, deportation. Kasich immediately jumped on this and starts he took, arguing. He, he kind of took Bush's humanity line. Right. He, he basically stole said, that moment He basically He totally stole that yeah. moment. He basically was like, you're not going to rip people away from their families and ship them across the border. It's not going to happen logistically, and it shouldn't happen on a human level. And then Trump tried to shut him down, and Trump got booed for the first time that night. And Kasich had to feel like, whoa, I just came out of a Donald Trump confrontation unscathed. Unscathed. I got it made. I got, I it, got made. it made. And then he proceeded to talk the rest of the debate, so it was great. Yeah. I found it interesting that John Kasich, a guy who's who consistently tries to raise the point that he's a big budget guy, he understands money, understands how to make the spreadsheets work, he opts to talk about immigration, not in the obvious sense that deporting 11.5 million people is financially impossible. Uh, he he chooses to uh, to make the sentimental argument. Do you think he'd been better served trying to back up back himself up with the facts and figures in this case? Or do you think the sentiment's the way to go in this in this forum? Well I think the sentiment has kind of dominated the issue. We I think we talked about this earlier maybe, but it's yeah, it's it's interesting that the economic argument doesn't come up at all, it seems. And Republicans really find that appealing because it's like, okay, well, let's let's make this argument for the fact that it helps the economy, it helps us, you know, grow the economy, as they always say. But yeah, it's it's weird that they don't bring that up more. But I don't know. I think I think you're right that it's just kind of dominated the yeah, it's weird because <laughs> because Trump's argument Trump's argument is that all the illegal immigration and the presence of 11.5 million people in this country undocumented hurts the economy. Right. It's taking jobs. It's driving it's, down yeah. wages. And that's, we should deport that's the them. Lingo that he's been using. Yeah, and that's the that's kind of the conservative argument through and through is that you know they're taking away our jobs. I, I found tonight to be a strange debate in that I couldn't really pick a clear winner or a clear yeah. or maybe some clear losers. And maybe I'm kidding myself when I think, yeah, this guy lost the debate. But is there someone who you think helped their position a little bit more tonight? I think, I mean, we all know I'm a huge Kasich fan, but I think he definitely helped his position a little bit more tonight. You are a huge Kasich fan. I know, I know. I'm, you know, I, I admit it, but I do feel like he infringed upon Jeb's position on a bunch of places. And right. while Jeb did well tonight, he and Marco both did not were not able to get rid of Kasich entirely. Um, he's still around. He's still around to play for those New Hampshire numbers. And I think that 
honestly, will be more damaging to Rubio and Jeb's campaign than anything than the two of them. Right? Jeb now. really can't afford to lose much more ground, no. especially Ooh. guys like he Kasich. He can't share those yeah. numbers. Yeah. yeah, Marina, who do you think? Who made the, who positioned himself the best? I mean, we talked about. I don't know if Rand positioned himself the best, but he definitely reminded voters like, hey, I'm still here. I'm occupying this libertarian. (laughs) I'm still isolated, but I'm here. (laughs) I would agree. I I have to I have to agree with you guys that he was teetering at the edge of falling on the undercard. And now I sort of think that I'd like to keep him around if. For no other reason. But do the voters want to keep him around? Hmm. Yeah, I know. I know. See, I think the voters are going to have to recognize that the value of having Rand is some of those really cool moments that we got into cross between debaters tonight. The cat jumped tonight for Rand. The cat jumped tonight. And um, if voters want to see more of that, they'll put him in office. Maybe he'll bring enough people who have been so disaffected (laughs) with his performance back to his fold. Maybe. Maybe. But I guess it's an open question. We got so many more of these debates. So oh many. How are so many. Get, how are we going to go through them all? Huh. Well, we're, I can think of a few ways. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are officially under a year away, finally. Yeah, that's really great news. That's really great is news. It? Is it really small, great news? We small still got a year to go. You know what's terrific is that uh, is that in just about seven months, those head-to-head polls We'll start to actually start cohering with things you can predict. Uh, but it's going to be a long road. Oh, boy. <laughs> be less excited, Jason. <laughs> be less excited. Hey, guys. We'll get back to the program in just a second. I just wanted to take a minute to welcome all of you into my safe space here. And to thank all of you for tuning into the show and helping us to create an Inside the Beltway show for Beltway Outsiders and make it a reality. We love hearing from you. Your feedback has been such a tremendously good, positive influence on us every week. Now, you can help other people find out about this show that you're helping to build. If you are an iTunes user, please look for our show. Subscribe if you haven't. And use iTunes' widgets to rate our show and to leave us a comment. It will help people like you find this show. And we can keep building what we've got going together. So head on out to iTunes, subscribe, rate, and say hello to us and your fellow listeners. Thanks so much, guys. And now, here's something else that happened. Hey, we're back. And so there was a Republican debate this week. There's going to be a Democratic debate coming up on Saturday, for fuck's sake. What the fuck? I know. Saturday. Debate on weekdays. Ugh. I have to go to Florida this weekend to take care of my grandparents, which is like, you know, not super fun all the time, but it's definitely more fun than watching a Democratic debate oh. on a Saturday, so sucks for you guys. All right, well, we're going to talk about two issues that may or may not be, probably should be uh, at least mentioned at the Democratic debate, um, and we're going to talk about them with Jessica Schulberg. Hello. Uh, and uh, Arthur Delaney. Hello. Jessica, it's really nice to have you on the show to talk about something that's not in the process of blowing up. Yeah, no one's immediately dying as a result of yes. this, just slowly this is, this is This is one rare moment where you're kind of in the... Not not completely pessimistic role, but still not good news. Don't get people too excited. Sorry, yeah, don't get excited. It's bad news. Uh, this week, uh, Congress threw the latest in a series of roadblocks in front of President Obama, whose oldest uh, campaign promise—I think he came out of the womb promising this—was to close Guantanamo Bay. Why? 
does the Senate keep doing this? Why does Congress keep doing this? So Congress, for the past several, I want to say four years, every single year when there's the National Defense Authorization, which basically funds the military, um, they throw in these amendments that, practically speaking, make it impossible to close Guantanamo. Um, You can't use any funds to send detainees to the U.S., even if it's just for medical treatment. You can't use any funds to build facilities to house these guys in the U.S. Um, And part of the president's plan to eventually close Gitmo will be to send some people home and keep the rest of them in the U.S. Um, This year, I think a lot of human rights groups were sort of hoping that in the past, Obama had always threatened to veto the NDA over this, but it's a pretty unpopular move to not fund the troops. Um, So he always ended up signing it and sort of saying, hey, I'm signing this because of the military, but like you guys really need to stop the bullshit. We need, we need to close Guantanamo. Now he, had he already sort of used up his veto juice on a previous defense bill? Because no, that's, actually... that's how it comes in. It comes in juice. Yeah. <laughs> he's, never, he's never vetoed the defense bill and has a relatively low number of vetoes total for his presidency. And so I think because of that, a lot of human rights groups are sort of expecting him to go pretty hard on this NDAA. And he threatened to veto it again this year. He did veto it, and he cited three reasons for vetoing it. One was Guantanamo, and two were more kind of defense spending related. They're saying, like, uh, instead of actually making real cuts to the military spending, you're just putting all the money in this big wartime slush fund called OCO. Um, so Congress dealt with the funding issues, but didn't yeah. really do anything about Guantanamo. But they, and they sent it back to him with the same crappy Guantanamo. Well, so, so they had to vote again, and everyone's saying, like, wow, like, what, the White House isn't really threatening to veto this. The White House isn't really lobbying Democrats. Like, why, why isn't he pushing for this? Um, I want to say it was, God, what was it? Really high vote in the House in favor of it, and it was 93, 91 to 3 in the Senate voting in favor of the NDAA. And so basically just overwhelming support for this bill on both parties. It basically forbids Obama from closing Guantanamo. So many members of the military, including people who have commanded the military in the relevant theaters, uh, have said that Gitmo is an animating uh, um s- is an animating source of inspiration for uh, terrorist tool. recruitment. Right. Uh, has that changed? Are, are terrorists now like, well, you know, we're chill with Gitmo? No, I don't think that's that's changed. So it's still it's pretty. Still it's still, still de facto dangerous. Just still, to, still a problem. Gitmo to exist. I have a sort of basic question about Gitmo. It is a the special prison that we have in Cuba, and none of the people there right now have been charged with crimes. Uh, there's seven people right now that are facing military commissions, which is basically a war court. And just to give you like a small sample of how effective that system is, the five guys accused of playing 9-11 have been on pretrial for over two years. And how many people total are incarcerated at Gitmo? 112. Right Not now. charged with crimes. <laughs> yes. So now, now this, well, so, this is what is confusing to me. Now, is it's it's not only contrary to our values as a country. It's like. Insofar as we still have them. It's con- to our principles. Insofar as we In the Constitution that just holds someone indefinitely. I mean, this is habeas corpus, which is old. Something that human. Kind has been familiar with for, so for a weird, really long time. Weird intersection of our law and international law, and international law we're pretty good at ignoring. But basically, under the law of war, you can detain people without charging them with a crime as long as you're actively engaged in hostilities, as long as you're at war. And so, because the 2001 AUMF, which is very, very broad, says that 
we are authorized to fight war against al-Qaeda and the Taliban and its affiliated forces, there's some people legal argue, who would make the legal argument that we're in the same war that we've been in since 9-11. And because of that, we can hold anyone that we even suspect of being affiliated with any of these groups until that war ends. And, that, and it's this month that Congress has said, go ahead, do do any war you want. Yeah, Congress what? doesn't want to vote on an AUM. Can you, can you explain to me the—I uh, I have to assume that— these detainees have like some kind of very special superpowers that require us to keep them in Gitmo, as opposed to say a federal supermax prison. Like, do they have like like are they in, like can they control metal like Magneto? <laughs> are they in like plastic jails? Not not as far as I know. And I mean, there's there's definitely a precedent for. So charging. these guys aren't like the X Men, is what you're saying? <laughs> not as far as I know. A lot of them are pretty low ranking guys that maybe were at a Taliban training camp once because they got threatened by the Taliban that they were going to get killed if they didn't so, go. I thought they, they, they should imprison the X-Men. So what is, it that makes, what is it that makes members of Congress so cowardly? Do they, are they able to sleep? Do they get up in the middle of the night when like, they hear a sound outside the door? They're like, God, throw it in Gitmo, throw it in Gitmo. Is it like that? Are they just that wussified? I think, I think a lot of people, I mean, you especially see the backlash coming from lawmakers who represent states that could potentially house Gitmo prisoners, and no one wants to be like, yeah, bring the terrorists into into my backyard. Like, what that's Tom, great. What does Tom Cotton say about closing Gitmo? Oh, definitely definitely not in favor. He wants to keep sending people to Gitmo. Every so, time we find a new terrorist, he's so, like, send them to Gitmo. So big, big man Tom Cotton can't take the heat either. Okay, well, uh, uh, this is obviously something that could come up. Uh, are we familiar with what, where the candidates stand on it? Uh, Hillary and Bernie are both in favor of closing Gitmo, but I mean, the issue is I don't think really any Democrat has come out Bernie and Bernie wants to close it harder. <laughs> well, it's the thing is there's a difference between wanting to close it because I think almost every lawmaker in Congress, Democratic lawmaker in Congress, wants to close Gitmo. Um, the question comes down to, like, what the hell are they going to do about it? I mean, this isn't this isn't easy. There's a lot of legal obstacles in the way. There's a lot of infrastructural obstacles. I mean, even if you were able to move them to the U.S., you'd have to build a new facility because law of war says you can't house people that aren't charged with the crime next to our federal prisoners who have been charged with the crime. So we'd have to build this whole new structure. Yeah. And I just think that there's if a only, lack of willpower from really anyone to actually make shit if, happen on if this. If only history taught us how to get through the Gordian knot. <laughs> I want to talk about another thing. Um, uh, this is the first question at the Republican debate. Was surprised. A brilliant question. Great question. Credit... Neil Cavuto yes. for asking this question, asking it in a good way, showing he's on top of the news, and giving some people who don't show up on the debate stage a chance to be on the debate stage. And I'm talking about the Fight for 15 movement. He, he directly directly asked, do you support raising the minimum wage to $15? And the Republicans unanimously said, we will not give you good wages, American people, but vote for us. So that's cool. That's cool. So uh, you, one would suspect that perhaps this comes up in the Democratic debate. What's, well, the, what's the latest uh, for the fight, in the fight for 15? It's got to come up. I mean, the reason it came up in the Republican debate, and Cavuto explained this in his question, is that fight for 15 is having what might actually be its biggest week in the two years this campaign has existed. They had massive rallies on Tuesday, and Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, said, you know what? State workers are going to be getting $15 an hour by the end of the year. Uh, a mayor in Pittsburgh did the same thing. And Bernie Sanders spoke at a rally outside the Capitol in Washington, D.C. And Hillary Clinton, who has previously favored not necessarily $15, maybe $12, which had been a previous Democratic demand, Clinton came out and lent her support 
to the cause this week. So it's, it's a very prominent issue for the Democrats. And I'm certain they'll talk about how they differentiate each other will be interesting. Will Bernie say she, you know, that Hillary Clinton's kind of a Johnny-come-lately to this issue? We talked about this after the, uh, the Republican debate in the live stream. Um, it is uh, correct uh, to understand a raise in the minimum wage as a trade-off that could impact employment. Even people who support the minimum wage, economists, uh, members of Congress recognize this. And there was a a prominent Congressional Budget Office report that uh, explained the trade-offs in a way that was less favorable to the Democratic argument than than, most economists had previously said. But you can't deny that there's there's a trade-off and it could possibly reduce some employment. Although some people would argue, you know, the, the improved... The, uh, the greater amount of money sloshing around in, in workers' paychecks will have positive economic sure, effects sure, yeah, that yeah, actually the, continue to increase employment. But, you know, it's, the, it's a fair debate. Right, yes. Yeah, and but we, we, talked, we talked in the, the Republican debate that, that while, they, while, while they were quick to say this costs jobs, they didn't actually get into the weeds and start discussing the trade-offs in, in, in the terms that you might want to hear them discuss. It sounds to me like the only thing separating Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders, and we'll remind everyone that Martin O'Malley is technically a... Uh, he is. He's, he's great. He's there. He's up there, too. But the only thing that separates these three three candidates is the extent to which they're, uh, they've explored the trade-off. We, ex- we imagine, I imagine that, 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 that Bernie Sanders is going to, like we said, want to raise the minimum wage, wage harder. <laughs> Hillary Clinton will want to raise the minimum wage, but not, this, not to the same extent. I think it's a difference. You just said it was a difference in like she two, has previously dollars. Said, yeah, she said in some states where the cost of living is lower, maybe 15 is too high and 12 would be more appropriate. Right. So in a world where like more is better on the surface... Hillary Clinton has a sort of responsibility to explain this trade-off in a way that makes sense to everybody. The way that she she's saying, "Well, I know I'm not offering you as much as Bernie Sanders, but did here, but here's the economic reality. Here's the balance I'm trying to hit." Is that something you can do in 90 seconds at a debate? It, it ought to be. And this is a thing that she, the situation she's been in, where she's like a bit less liberal than Sanders on a range of issues, and she has not tried to explain the difference. For instance, on Social Security, she's been like, yes, I favor strengthening Social Security, but if they actually got into the argument, it might be so technical, you know, if they talk about how the government measures inflation that nobody thinks they can win, or that she doesn't think she can win making a technical argument when Bernie Sanders is going to say, no, I don't favor anything that even technically cuts benefits. Uh, Unfortunately, on minimum wage, I think it's a topic that would really benefit from a general election debate, which we won't have for a little while. Well, we'll have, I imagine we'll have it eventually. Yeah, yeah. Unless everything's solved by then. I'm just saying we won't get it on Saturday. I feel like there's a, there's a chance that the minimum wage debate between Sanders and Clinton, if they don't find the time or have the wherewithal to get into the nuances, it's going to come across like the way uh, Repu- Republican candidates bit, bit up GDP growth. Oh, well, there'll be 4% under me. There'll be 6% under me. And it's a little bit, uh, we talk about that as being like a little bit crazified. Uh, such a bidding war on the Democratic side, we'd have to say is perhaps a little bit silly too, right? It's. I think it's going to, what we'll have to watch for is will Martin O'Malley have the guts to call out <laughs> Hillary Clinton? Because we know Bernie Sanders, it's like not his style. He doesn't yeah, want to yeah. be a jerk. 
but Martin O'Malley was willing, or at least his campaign was, to criticize Clinton on Social Security and say that Martin's better. One, one last thing I just, this goes in the category of stuff I can't let go of. I'm thinking about doing a video series called I Just Can't Let Go, <laughs> um, where I complain about the things that still bother me months after the fact. At the last Democratic debate, Jessica, uh, Hillary Clinton called the Libyan intervention smart power at its best. Oh, God. Yeah, was, it doesn't make you like... rough. It was really rough. I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, well... I don't really like Hillary's foreign policy, but Bernie doesn't have one. Uh, I don't really know where that leaves me as a foreign policy-minded voter, so... At your grandparents' house. Yeah. Not watching. Watching Fox News. That's that's where I'll be when you guys are watching the Democratic debate. You taking care of your grandparents this weekend, Mm -hmm. I think arguably sounds like that might be smart power at its best. You could... I'm not following the argument. Oh, well. (laughs) Shot in the dark there. (laughs) Shot in the dark. Not everything I try to do in the show works. (laughs) So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Adriana Ucero and Peter James Callahan with technical assistance from Christine Canetta and spiritual guidance from Caitlin Boguki. Hashtag Caitlin can fix it. I'm Jason Lincolns, and this week we were joined by Slate's chief political correspondent, Jamel Bowie, as well as Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, Marina Fang, Jessica Schulberg, and Lauren Weber. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store while you're there. Subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. As always, thanks for listening, and we miss you already.